0: We've seen a rise of nationalism across many countries, with the elections of Donald Trump, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, Viktor Orban in Hungary, and Narendra Modi in India, to name just a few. Nationalism is often driven by ethnic, racial, religious, or political identifications. And there's an important economic component as well. Globalization, which many view as the opposite of nationalism, is seen as a central source of economic dislocation, rising inequality, and the presence of immigrants who don't fit some people's vision of the nation. Nationalist economic policies threaten the post-World War II structure of international economic linkages and rules-based institutions. Institutions that were created in response to the destructive nationalism that deepened and lengthened the Great Depression of the 1930s. What drives the tension between nationalism and globalization? What is the prospect for greater international cooperation? And what is the likelihood of this occurring? To address these questions and to offer some historical context, I'm very happy to welcome back to Iconifact Chats, Maurice Opsfeld of UC Berkeley. Maury is widely recognized as one of the world's leading experts in international economics. He served as a member of President Obama's Council of Economic Advisers, and from 2015 to 2018, he served as the Chief Economist at the International Monetary Fund. Maury, welcome back to Econofact Chats.
1: Thank you, Michael. It's great to be here.
0: It's wonderful to have you on again. Maury, globalization is a vague term. Can you explain a bit more specifically what economists mean when they talk about globalization and what's been its path over the past century and a half?
1: Well, economists generally view globalization as the uh, integration into global markets of countries' economies, which entails a free movement across borders of uh, goods, services, financial assets, even people. And, uh, you know, more broadly uh, these days,
0: information. And what's happened to globalization over the last 150 years or so?
1: Well, globalization reached a high level toward the end of the 19th century and into the beginning of the 20th century, although it was a very different form of globalization. It was partially based on the existence of large empires, you know, the British Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, as a result of uh World War One and then the uh, the Great Depression, globalization plummeted, and then it gradually came back in the in the post-war era, especially uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union and the Soviet uh, bloc more generally, uh, around uh, around 1990.
0: He talked about the increase in national nationalist policies during the Great Depression of the 1930s. And these policies restricted trade and international borrowing and lending. And they also saw efforts to undercut other countries through cheapening currencies, a distant mirror of the similar turn to nationalism that we saw in the wake of the 2008 financial and economic crisis. In an article you recently wrote, you quote John Maynard Keynes's 1933 speech in Dublin that argued for turning away from foreign entanglements.
1: Well, Keynes had been a, a free trader early in, in his life, a sort of doctrinaire free trader. And uh, in this 1933 speech called National Self-Sufficiency, he argued that the world was in a very difficult period uh, with, with depression, with the rise of uh, totalitarianism in Germany and in the Soviet Union. And um, if democracy and democratic capitalism were to survive, countries would really need to experiment on what, what sorts of policies would, would best um, restore domestic prosperity. Remember, at that point, he hadn't yet written the general theory. And he felt that it might be easier for countries to experiment if some aspects of international integration were, uh, were limited. Uh, for example, uh, flows of what he called hot money between, between countries, uh, speculative capital movements, which were a big feature of that period. I don't really regard that as a a wholesale endorsement of of economic nationalism, even though the general theory was was a model of a domestic economy and how a domestic government could meet domestic needs. Keynes also held out the hope in that book that if countries could um, develop the tools and deploy the tools that would restore prosperity, then they might also engage in mutually beneficial international trade. And his um, his work on uh, the Bretton Woods system uh, was an attempt to, to bring that vision to reality.
0: Right. So as you mentioned, Keynes was one of the principals at the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944, and that helped create the post-war international monetary system. And then a year later in 1945, he gave a speech in front of the House of Lords defending the Bretton Woods Treaty. The Bretton Woods system lasted until 1973, but there were these irreconcilable economic tensions, and there was also a push by President Nixon to end the Bretton Woods system at that time. Famously, around that time, when there were these concerns about the dollar, Treasury Secretary John Connolly said, in a high-level group of 10 meeting, it's our currency, but it's your problem.
1: Well, at that at that time, we're, we're in, uh... In August, uh, at the 50th anniversary of when President Nixon renounced the the central plank of the Bretton Woods system, which was the U.S. promise to redeem uh, foreign exchange holdings of of dollars by foreign central banks uh, for gold at $35 an ounce, Um, you know, at the time, uh, the U.S. was was um, suffering from uh, a number of economic problems, um, growing inflation, uh, and also um, a sense that its um, export competitiveness had been undercut by uh, the growing uh, export success of uh, of Japan, of Germany, of other European countries. Uh, it was a set of forces not unlike what we. Have seen more recently with with China's rise, and uh, Nixon had a view that the U.S. had to do more to preserve its its position. It had to do it without the um, uh, enthusiastic agreement of its allies, who could be pressured, which is what he did. And interestingly, he he also had held similar views in the in the defense arena. He wanted the U.S. to scale back its support for defense expenditures in the specific in the Pacific region, which it had been uh, bankrolling. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of kind of a, a prologue to some of the themes that we saw during the Trump presidency, but driven by many of the same forces. Uh, Nixon didn't intend to bring down the Bretton Woods system. But, um, you know, with the U.S. starting to look out for its own interests uh, more, uh, according to the Nixon Doctrine, uh, any hope that that system could be maintained was, uh, was vain. And uh, you know, by 1973, uh, exchange rates were floating. Of course, the centerpiece of the Bretton Woods system was fixed rates. So we entered this modern era of fiat currencies and uh, floating rates.
0: Maury, you also talked uh, before about the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991 and it seems that the move towards greater financial liberalization and the globalization of capital was at least in part fueled by that event. At that time, it seemed that global capitalism won and state-controlled economies lost the battle for intellectual ascendancy.
1: You know, the global liberalization of capital movements began earlier at the you know, at the latest in the, in the early 70s when the... Uh, abandonment of this commitment to fix exchange rates allowed countries to uh, liberalize without a fear of balance of payments crises of the type that had become very common by the late 60s and early 1970s. But it was also driven by, by other factors, notably the, the lobbying efforts of, uh, of financial interests who were very interested, particularly in the U.S. case in having the U.S be the, uh, the leading financial power. And in the UK case, where the euro dollar market was established in London in the 1950s in regaining some of Britain's past glory as a, as a financial center. And then you sort of add into this the growing um, influence of conservative economic policy viewpoints, which uh, reached um, dominance in policy circles under the Reagan administration in the US and Margaret Thatcher's government in the UK. And you you had significant forces pushing for for liberalization. The uh, collapse of the Soviet Union, I think provided a further impetus to that. And you you can see the explosion in financial uh, integration taking off at that point uh, with also um, a number of developing countries not fully opening their, their financial markets, but liberalizing considerably. And I think you're right that that part of this was a sense that the, uh, the Soviet model had failed, that capitalism was the wave of the future, and that opening up to capitalism, this was sometimes characterized as the Washington Consensus, was a, a sure path to growth.
0: Well, this globalization of capital led to many things, and one of the things it led to seems to be the financial and economic crisis in 2008 with the development of new financial instruments and so on. And that crisis helped spur the push against globalization. Of course, there were anti-globalization protests before this, but it seems that there was a rise of nationalism both on the right and on the left as a consequence of the events of September 2008 and the subsequent economic downturn. More, you wrote in another recently published article that in principle, economic policies aiming to further purely domestic objectives like low unemployment and low inflation, um, these nationally focused policies can be perfectly consistent with a high degree of global economics. But why is this difficult to achieve in practice? Well, one force that has been
1: pushing in the direction of... Uh anti-globalization has been inequality, Um, and in particular, some of the some of the adverse labor market outcomes that have been associated with, although not by any means entirely caused by trends in the way production is organized in the international economy. And I I don't I don't want to imply that inequality, that economics explains everything. A lot of a lot of it is cultural as well. But certainly the the inability of governments to um, offset some of the negative distributional effects, the negative regional effects of uh, both trade, but also of technological change has led to disenchantment with globalization across the political spectrum. And I think the, the, the 2008 crisis in particular led to widespread disillusionment with government in general, with governing elites, with uh, expertise, in particular uh, economic expertise, but not, not restricted to skepticism about economic expertise, and has had a pervasive effect that um, it took a while for us to uh, to really
0: grasp. So currently, both parties are in the trade skeptic camp. President Biden has not reversed most of former President Trump's tariffs and his trade representative, Catherine Tai, has argue, argued for using tariffs as a policy tool.
1: The Democrats have been in the t- trade skeptic camp for a, for a long time. Uh, you know, organized labor began to oppose trade liberalization in the late 1960s, precisely in that period I mentioned, when the Nixon administration was getting worried about export competition from Europe and Japan. But um, what has been new is the Republican about-face on trade. You know, when I was in the Obama administration, the President's Trade Promotion Authority to try to get TPP across the finish line was passed with mostly Republican support. But President Trump's administration, his campaign and his administration, revealed that an important part of the Republican base was not committed to free trade principles or conservative economic principles but you know viewed trade as uh, a threat to the american way of life viewed it as uh, something that had been foisted on the us by um by technocratic elites and you know put put immigration in the same in the same bin i mean republicans had long been more favorable to immigration than democrats that has obviously changed as well so that's another aspect of globalization where the Republican Party has, uh, you know, completely changed its uh, position.
0: So, Maury, what do you see as the future of globalization as compared to nationalism, and what are the broader implications of that?
1: The outlook is not a particularly good one. We're seeing a huge struggle in the Congress right now over um, the expansion of um, social programs, without which it's hard to imagine globalization. Being more widely embraced by voters, um, you know, in Europe, the uh, welfare state is more advanced. But uh, a danger is that uh, prevalence of anti-immigrant sentiment, which has been fueling uh, right-wing movements there, could turn voters against the welfare state. In fact, one of the one of the theories uh, put forth by uh, Alberto Alessina. At Glazer and Bruce Sacrodote um, some years ago about why the U.S. welfare state is so minimal compared to Europe is simply that ethnic diversity um, uh, makes it politically more difficult to put in place public goods of the type that prevail in Europe. So those are those are, um, I think, negative, negative uh, factors for the future. And more generally, I don't, think, I don't think the COVID experience has been a particularly uh, favorable one for the prospects of globalization. Not only is there a, a concern about the nature of supply chains, where you know you, you can make the case that the just-in-time supply chain is maybe too risky. Maybe we should move to just-in-case supply chains with more diverse production capabilities around the world. But I don't think most voters are going to necessarily see it like that. And um, we don't we don't know what, what trade policy will bring down the road either in this administration or in future administrations.
0: Is there a special role that the. US China set of tensions is playing in either a move towards greater globalization or a move towards greater nationalism? I guess it would be the latter wouldn't it?
1: Well I think of any if anything it's it's the latter. Um, there's the danger of you know, the world devolving into, great power blocks, which uh, you know may cooperate to some degree, but may be in conflict, including on uh, trade issues, and especially in the technology space where technology intersects with security. So that's something else I think we need to worry about.
0: And now the need for cooperation is especially hot with the pandemic and with climate change. But it seems like you're saying the prospects for that are not that good.
1: Unfortunately, the the trend toward more nationalistic thinking has brought with it greater skepticism about international institutions and international cooperation, but those are more necessary than, than ever before. They're necessary in the public health arena, and the recent crisis has um, illustrated some of the holes in public health cooperation, which previously some had thought to be relatively successful. Remember, we, we eradicated smallpox in the late 1970s as a result of cooperation that brought together Cold War adversaries. But what we saw in the uh, current crisis was disrupted supply chains, export restrictions at some stages, um, we're seeing uh, vaccine nationalism, and uh, you know the shocking fact that in the poorer countries, something like under 3% of the population is vaccinated when it's clearly in the interest of uh, the richer countries to expand the umbrella of vaccination to prevent the emergence of variants. Climate is obviously, if anything, an even bigger threat. And uh, there, we'll see what happens in COP26. But uh, climate, you know, like, like public health, uh, remains, at least in the United States, a political football And if the U.S. is divided over these issues, it's hard to see how the global community can move ahead.
0: So the term beggar thy neighbor policies came about in the 1930s when countries, as I mentioned, were trying to undercut each other with exchange rate depreciations. And I guess we're seeing something like beggar thy neighbor now with what's happening with vaccines and maybe beggar everybody with climate problems. So it's a real problem. Maury, any words of optimism to close out this podcast? Uh,
1: you know, I, I, <laughs> I, you haven't caught me in a really optimistic mood, Michael, but um, I think ultimately uh, we find that reality wins out. The problem is that it, that it may not win out quick enough. So, um, you know, the facts are on the side of, um, cooperation you know after the disasters of the interwar period and World War two the global community did set up some cooperative mechanisms which which served it well uh, quite well uh, the, the question is whether we will have to go through a comparable period of disarray before we come to our senses as a global community I hope not
0: well and a different context didn't Churchill say something about the United States that, we can be counted on to do the right thing after every other option was exhausted. So maybe we'll get to that point. Um, And I can only hope so.
1: So, Yeah, he also said that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others that have been tried. So we should hope that our democracy uh, leads to the U.S. doing the right thing eventually.
0: Well, um, If if we keep our democracy. If we keep our democracy. Well, on that somewhat kind of sort of hopeful note, I'll thank you, Maury, for joining me again on Econofact Chats. And of course, at AconiFact, what we're trying to do is, in fact, to get the facts out there to help perhaps speed up the transition to better policies. So thanks again for being on. Always a pleasure. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.accountafact.org. You can subscribe on our site to our newsletter that will let you know when we publish new memos and new podcast episodes. Please feel free to share this podcast and our memos with friends, colleagues, and on social media. Accountafact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.